Welcome to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. And now here's your host, Joe Levitt. Hello and welcome into this episode of the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. We're changing formats a little bit today, just in in topic. Uh, We're not going to really talk about barbecue. At least we may. We may not. It's not going to be the primary focus today. But the primary focus is going to be something that I think most of you will still appreciate and love to hear about, and that's liquor. So um, our guest is somebody I met several years ago through an event that I did uh, and immediately recognized his passion when it came to, to beverages, to cocktails, uh, and the care and precision in which he delivered his craft was unlike anything I had ever witnessed And the restaurant experience that I had at the restaurant he was at at the time was unlike anything I had ever experienced. We reconnected here recently, and I thought, man, he would be a great guest on the podcast, and he has agreed to do it. So please welcome in to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast, Eamon Rocky. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Joe. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit uh, about really your your beginnings. I want to go all the way back. You were the child of two chefs, not in a busy, hustling, bustling New York City, Chicago, but Hattiesburg, Mississippi. That's right. So what was growing up like for you around food? That's a good question. You know, my mom was a pastry chef by training and my dad was a savory chef. And they met in Washington, D.C., both cooking. Um, and I popped onto the radar and quickly fell in love with food, um, growing up with my folks, both excellent chefs. Uh, we moved to Hattiesburg, Mississippi when I was four, four or five years old, and I spent most of my childhood there, uh, growing up eating really, really well and and having a, a, a you know sort of household passion for food and, and cooking. Uh, so I, I credit that uh, that those beginnings as being what enabled me to be able to produce my own spirit today. Yeah. Right. And there was this hiatus where we met uh, and, and the, the entire Dave Ramsey team, uh, I feel a very deep and personal, true affection for, you know, over the years getting to know you guys. But now being, if I can just plug, you know, the experience I'm going through right now, you know, I've, I've been used to you coming to my house in, in so far as like coming to my restaurant. Right. Yeah. But now being in your house is truly breathtaking and really, really special. So I, I just want to say thank you for that. But you know, going <clears throat> from cooking uh, with with chefs as parents, uh, attending culinary school in in Hyde Park, New York, in the Hudson Valley, uh, thinking I would you know end up in a kitchen. I still kind of do, and and spend a couple of years learning about wine and service and hospitality and because spirits. you went to Hyde Park thinking uh, CIA, right? Is yes, that, yes, that's exactly right. Um, which is. It's so funny. We're, I'm good friends with Manit Shohan, who's a CIA uh-huh. uh, graduate, and and to hear you know you, they say that so flippantly, like everybody knows, and, but only in hospitality do they think culinary institute. Everyone else just thinks that you're, you know, some kind of spy or something. <laughs> you know? But yeah, uh, so you went there with with kind of the expectation that you were going to come out a chef. Absolutely. So what changed that trajectory for you to where you said, man, I. I love food, I love cooking, but I kind of like this a little bit more. You know, I'll be honest, nothing changed. I I still think I'm going to be a chef when I I grow up, you know, and, and... Now, 20 years out of out of school, I, I, I feel like, you know, at some point I'll end up going back home, you know, going back to the kitchen. I, okay. I, I genuinely do. 
Um, it, it's it's not about falling in love with beverage and deciding to do it instead. It's just, you know, I, I feel like I, I kind of have a tiger by the tail with, with this spirit and there's so much momentum behind it and so much enthusiasm for it. Um, I, I need to invest in it. Yeah. And, and grow it and, and build it into what I know it can become. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, I'll find my way back to the kitchen. Okay. Well, let's talk just briefly. This isn't because you, people are like, what kind of spirit is he talking about? Sure. Like, what are we getting into <laughs> yeah. here? Uh, but let's talk a little bit about your current endeavor. And then we'll kind of backtrack. We'll talk a little bit sure. about your history because it's it's fascinating to me. Uh, so tell folks what, what you've got here. What, what are you making uh, Rocky's Botanical Liquor. Exactly right. Liqueur? So, uh, yeah, yeah, Liqueur. Yeah. Liquor. <laughs> you can give me some liquor. Uh, <laughs> liqueur uh, sounds much more New York City. I'll answer to either, you know, and, and I live in New York now, uh, but, but my roots are definitely the South, so it feels, it feels cool coming yeah, back. Cool. Um, that said, uh, you know, I, I, I make Rockies in Brooklyn. Uh, it's a natural liqueur, as you, as you point out. Uh, it's made uh, using a blend of green apple, pineapple, green and black tea, lemon, lime, and orange. Um, there's not a ton of booze. There is some um, that's made from a natural New York corn distillate, a really clean, fresh, light spirit. Uh, but it's really all about the fruit, the tea, and the citrus. Um, and the idea behind it is that you can drink Rockies by itself over you know, a couple pieces of ice, and it's delicious, um, not too sweet, way less sweet than most liqueurs. So it is intended to be delicious on its own. But um, as a home consumer, and I can count myself uh, a member of that community now, um, you know, you can take Rockies and mix it with anything, like anything, Prosecco, gin, whiskey, vodka, does not matter, tequila. You can mix it with Rockies and it will be delicious every single time. And that was, that was the goal. There's not anything else on market that you can enjoy on a daily basis. It's going to hit the shelves for about 24, 25 bucks uh, here, here in Tennessee. Uh, this is the first week that it will ever be available in, in Tennessee. So it's a really, really special uh, time. Um, and so again, the idea is that uh, it's something that you can crack open on a daily basis, not too, not too uh, spendy, uh, way less sugar than most liqueurs, not overly boozy. So if you want to keep it light, you just mix it with seltzer or some rosé or Prosecco or whatever. And if you want something stronger, then just reach for your favorite spirit of choice, right? It will always deliver and it will always be delicious. Well, I, I feel like I shouldn't take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I luckily, feel, we have a bottle. Luckily, we have a bottle. Yeah. We have some some glassware here. Uh, so you mentioned this is the first week uh, that it's... Yes? Oh, perfect. Yes. So have some lovely large format ice. That was here. not a sound effect. That actually happened. It did live in person. That's right. Uh, first week that it's available here in Tennessee. You are as part of, you know, you're an entrepreneur now. You are. Oh, that sounds so good on the microphone. It really does. <laughs> it's you real. Can... It's actually real. The ice at the the Dave Ramsey uh, show at, at the at this studio is is better than most bars, if I can just say. It's not clear, but at least it's large. It's cold and it's large, you know? Yeah. We're, um, we do, sometimes for our fancy events, we'll order uh, artisan ice and clear ice and, sure. and, and do it right. Uh, but we haven't quite invested in our ice program here in our kitchen, but we at least have some uh, some ice trays that make big cubes. Yes. And that's, uh, that's all we can count on. Uh, so first week here, oh, let's pour it. Sound effects are killing it. It's great. It really does sound 
uh, fantastic. Yeah, and it's uh, really happening. That's what I'm I'm so floored by is that it sounds like these are sound effects that you have on like some sort of board and you're pushing buttons. Yeah, I've got a guy here in the corner, exactly. like one of those old time <laughs> yeah. movie guys. Exactly right. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, so uh, let the record show that I'm I'm pouring Rockies simply over ice. First pour in Tennessee ever. This is this is the first time Rockies has ever been poured for anybody that wasn't like part of some sort of like distributor or sales education. Blog. Amazing! You're the first human being to try Rockies in Tennessee. I love it. Me too. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you said first time it's kind of being distributed here in Tennessee. That's right. Uh, if folks want to find out where they can find it, they can go to your website. Rockiesliqueur.com is that exactly right? right. Uh, and then there's a there's a great little kind of finder where you can find bars uh, that are serving it, and you can find liquor shops, bottle shops that are uh, that are carrying it as and well. And there are none as of today uh, the, in Tennessee. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're exactly zero. So uh, the distribution deal was is freshly minted. That's right. He's meeting with a sales team this week. That's right. Uh, and he is going to sell them as he's selling me on it. It smells lovely um, on this. And, uh, and hopefully get it into a ton of bottle shops here in Middle Tennessee uh, to start and then take over the state. That's the store idea. Store by store. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Absolutely. Yes. Lovely. Mm. You're right. It is uh, super fresh, super light. It is not uh, the green apple I was expecting a little more uh, like bitter or you know like mm. a little sour sure sure, um, sure but i'm not i'm not getting that at all um what's interesting is that it's both light and i'm also like it's it's taking it it's taking me back it tastes like michigan in the fall mm. a little bit by itself. i like that but it's but yet it's light and i could see drinking it over ice on just a hot summer day as i'm out there cooking burgers or something just just hot and yep. you don't want something really heavy this would be great. What I like about um, the theme of this show, I think normally, and I, and I recognize I'm disrupting a little bit today, uh, is that um, last year uh, I was commissioned to make a barbecue sauce inspired by the ingredients in Rockies. Okay. So now I'm you're talking. Totally. It was, and it's so good, right? It, it was a white barbecue sauce. I wanted to do something a little bit different, okay. but I used to the to the T. Every single ingredient in in Rockies. So again, using apples as the base instead of tomatoes, mm -hmm. um, instead of using vinegar. Although I think I did add a splash of champagne vinegar or something, yeah. you know. But um, using mostly the citrus, right? The lemon, orange, and lime, in lieu of most of the citrus, and a bit of really strong tea to give it some sort of grown up bitterness, mm -hmm. and and pineapple. Um, slathered it all over some ribs and and grilled them nice, slow and slow, and it was pretty madness. It was okay. really really good. Were you doing? Were you doing like a pop up shop uh, at some point? Was that, or was that some? Or was that Bryce? Maybe I'm confusing. It was Bryce. Oh, doing some, sure, sure, sure. Was, and he was doing ribs, right? Was correct? He not, yeah. Bryce is a far better cook than me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talking about Bryce Schumann, who was uh, yes. the, the chef uh, and kind of the your co-conspirator yeah, exactly. at, at Bettany yep. in New York City. Yep. Um, he's from he's from Chapel Hill, uh, and and uh, barbecue is is certainly part of his DNA. So yeah. his 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 barbecue is extraordinary. I you know I can do little one-off things here and there, and and you know making a Rockies botanical liqueur inspired uh, barbecue sauce was really cool. But I'm sure even that he would he beat me at. <laughs> Well, this this is lovely. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's great. So, have you uh, have you tried to 
do one of those crazy like uh, TikTok things where I'm like, if I can take a bottle of Rockies and mix it with like uh, the grossest sherbet and something else and make like some viral like thing, because that seems all the rage these days is like create this great cocktail out of three like really gross ingredients. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, people tell me all the time that when they drink things that they're not typically fond of, but they mix it with Rockies, it ends up being tasty. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm not afraid of that challenge at all. Um, I would say that I'm not the most TikTok savvy person. You know, maybe <laughs> I should be taking some notes here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm trying to get the word out by any means possible. Um, I think it's worth saying... I've done this by myself. You know, what's what's crazy mm-hmm. is where we met, you know, where Bryce was the chef and 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 I I was his his dining room counterpart, his his partner in the in the madness at Bettany, we had eighty five people on our team, right? Mm-hmm. And so in terms of a one location restaurant, one 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 address restaurant, it was a pretty substantial team. And, you know, we come we came from and come from a fine dining world that, you know, has all of these people doing all of these things and delegation is crucial. Not just it's not just an opportunity, it's it's requisite, right? Right, mm-hmm. to be able to operate on a daily basis. And now I'm completely by myself, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's a really, really, really different experience. And you know, from making it to, to se- selling it and getting the word out to marketing it, uh, creating content around it, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or whatever, right? Uh, just to, to wear all of these different hats, it's a completely new experience from where we first met. Yeah. So you know, in the restaurant, you were you were a leader. Yep. You know, you were responsible for leading front of house. I think correct uh, for for Bettany. Um, so talk about what what maybe you're learning about yourself because you've got to answer to yourself. Yeah. You were leading a team of one. Um, what what is this experience kind of teaching you as as a as a leader? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, well. Unfortunately, I can't fire myself. <laughs> right. Uh, <no. laughs> um, but your work, your output determines your income. Absolutely. Know, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and it's true. I, I will say that um, I think I'm really blessed to come from a busy city full of busy restaurants and hardworking people. And and uh, it's uh, you know it's worth saying that I, I feel hospitality. Uh, folks, whether it's chefs or bartenders or servers or whomever, managers in restaurants, as I was in the last place, some of the hardest working people I've ever met, right? So, um, you know, being able to come from that world where daily hard work, long hours and and creative thinking, you know, problem solving uh, is sort of second nature, right? And and to, to go from uh, a pretty stable career um, in in fine dining restaurants that that universally were were appreciated. You know, we had uh, a lot of people who who uh, uh, aligned with what we wanted to do and and really liked what we what we cooked and what we shook up and the bottles we cracked open and the hospitality we provided. Uh, to transition that into producing Rockies and to do it by myself is is certainly a learning experience. Um, what I will say is, and I've made this point many times over, and and I continue to. Think think of it's just as relevant today as it was the first time that sort of lightning bolt hit me. Um, when you have a fine dining restaurant or when you have a cool cocktail bar, whatever it is, right, that people, you know, read the reviews and, and they get excited about coming in because they saw the New York Times or Eater or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the infatuation wrote something really, really exciting that's compelling and, and uh, um, drives people to your through your doors, right, and into your dining room. It's really easy to become sort of self-assured at how special you are mm-hmm. and, and to feel like you have you have something that 
that is in demand uh, and justifies you having you know kind of a cocky attitude about about mm-hmm. executing uh, fine dining food and drinks and whatever on a daily basis. But when you're uh, out there doing the exact opposite, I'm I'm taking this bottle that is brand spanking new, even if it's delicious, and it is by the way delicious. <laughs> but e- you know, even though it is delicious, and even though the pricing is good, and the story is interesting, and and it's compelling, and it's new, and it's fresh, and all these things, people don't want it because they don't know about it. You know, have to make them want it. I have to. I have to tell people yep. this is worth your time and worth your your energy to discover and to expand your perspectives um, and to think about including it in what you're already doing at your bar or restaurant or home. Right. So instead of people coming to me and saying, uh, "Let me give you money to uh, uh, prepare a meal and to make an experience," now I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm going to them and asking them to give me, you know however many bucks a bottle to to integrate into their into their lives. So it's a very different perspective. And um, it's one that has forced me to to stop thinking about anything that I'm doing as being uh, special or in, in demand and to uh, uh, approach things in a way that uh, looks at the needs of other people, right? And, and and empathy is much, much more important. To be able to walk into a restaurant or bar or, you know, approach a consumer, you know, a, a home bartender, and, and to think about them uh, at a level that identifies the things that they need, the things that they're motivated by and what they want, and and to find a way that I can genuinely genuinely and authentically fit into that, that set of needs. Right. What, talking about the home kind of bartender yes. for, for lack of a, a better word. Yeah. What what do you think are some of the mistakes that home bartenders make when they're when they're creating or making even just standard cocktails? What sure. you know, what do you see? You go over to maybe when you go over to somebody's house, they don't make a cocktail for you uh, just out of fear. Um, <laughs> I hope not. Well I wouldn't make yeah. I'd be like, here, make me something. No. Well I mean I'd be happy to. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that Kind of to that point, honestly, Joe, is that uh, I think that people doubt themselves more than they should, mm. right? Um, the best drinks on the planet, 99.9% of the time, that, I don't think that's an inaccurate figure. They're simple. Mm. You know, they really are. They're very, very simple. If you have quality ingredients, good ice, as you have good ice, uh, good uh, uh, glassware, and you, you care about you know the temperature of the of the things that you're serving. I think temperature is very important. Um, you're going to make an exceptional cocktail, and and I, I see it all the time where home bartenders doubt the quality of their abilities or or mm-hmm. doubt the capacity of their abilities. But the fact of the matter is is that most bartenders, even the ones that have a lot of swagger, a lot of them are cutting corners, you know, and 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 often working with uh, ingredients that are not necessarily even as good as what home bartenders are using. So I think you know if there's one thing that I could in part to, to home bartenders is just believe that you're able to execute something yeah. really, really special. You know, a great martini. Like for me, my house cocktail, my home cocktail is a 50-50. Rockies and usually gin, but it could easily be anything else. Um, and as long as you can measure two things in yeah. the same quantity, get them nice and cold uh, with, with high-quality ice at home, um, and home ice is often even better than most bars, uh, with, and cut yourself a really nice piece of lemon, you're in business. It's a really good drink. Let's get in the weeds here a little bit. Let's you mentioned good glassware. Uh, what, what makes good glassware? What's the difference mm. from something I just go pick up at like TJ Maxx versus like if I really want to elevate a cocktail to everything that it could be? Yeah. 
what do I need to look for and what do I need for, for glassware? You know, I think good, and I know it's my word, uh, so I'll, I'll, you know, suffer by that. I mean, uh, I mean just clean. That's sure. What I, like, that's my, my standard. Is, just, <laughs> is, it, is it clean? Yeah. Is it without spots? That's funny. That's, that's where I, I... Well, you know, I think I think good is, is entirely subjective, right? Um, good could mean if you're making, you know, some sort of cobbler or an old-fashioned or whatever that you got the glass in the freezer and you got it nice and chilled, you know, so that when you pour your, your nicely stirred or whatever uh, shaken cocktail into it, it's it's going to be bracingly cold and keep your drink cold, right? Mm-hmm. So temperature, I think, is, is one major consideration. You can spend a lot of money on really expensive glassware that, and and I will compliment you, as we're drinking out of this, you know, Ramsey glass, it's beautifully thin at the edge, right? And there's something nice about feeling like a really thin glass on your okay. lips, you know what right. I mean? Because you know that if you if you touch it the wrong way, it's going to break. Done. It's right. done, right? And there's something cool about that mm-hmm. fragility that you're like, man, this, this is sexy. This is cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't overthink it too much. Um, I, 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 again, most people in most homes that I've been in that have at least the enthusiasm to produce a great drink, they can. And the ones that don't think they can, you know, they should just expand expand their perspectives. It's all about just having a few really high quality ingredients and doing very very little to them and letting them shine. So I want to go back to to Betany. I would. Mm. I would love to hear. I wish um, we could. Um, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, but they tore the building down. Oh golly! Yeah, it's gone. But you wouldn't be here, and you wouldn't be having this experience. (laughs) Yes, yes. If you were still at Bettany, you wouldn't have just left that to just go do this more than likely. Yep. Want to go back to that experience first? Let's start with how the idea and how you and Bryce came together to launch that. Yes. Together, I'd love to hear just the genesis story. Sure. Well, um, after culinary school, I moved to New York. I, I thought. I'll take a couple years, max, a couple years, and learn about hospitality and service and wine and spirits and all that crazy front of house stuff, right? Because mm-hmm. um, at this point, I'd only cooked, you know, I'd only cooked for my for my career uh, to that point. Uh, so I thought I'm going to go learn about service and wine and hospitality and all that jazz from Danny Meyer. Uh, Not a bad place to start. Totally, and you know, I I, I interviewed at a few of his restaurants. And I ultimately landed at a, a place called 11 Madison Park, which it sounds crazy to say now, but I'll tell you, back in 2006, 2007, it was not an interesting restaurant from an external perspective. It mm-hmm. was fascinating to be part of that team. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of New Yorkers didn't know that we even really existed in yeah. some ways, right? And and the concept was was evolving, and it was such an exciting and incredible time to be there because we were fighting, you know, we were fighting. There were there were people that had been working at that restaurant for, gosh, six or seven, eight years, and and under a different chef for the majority of it, under a different management team for the majority of it. So we were in a in a major point of change every single day. Um, and you know, in terms of in terms of cutting my teeth at a place that was that was going to change my life even more than I thought it was going to, um, I, I can't tell you how how grateful and excited I am to have how, been. How- yeah. How long were you there? At I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there from 2007 to 2010. Okay. Uh, pretty much and exactly three years. During that time, uh, you know, because I've, I've, were, I've, I'm fortunate enough to know Will, yep. Will Gadara, yep. who was a general manager. He was my mentor when I was there. Uh, at that time. Yep. And where in the, uh, the best restaurant kind of 
time frame was your time there. Sure. Where did where did did you leave? Kind of like right before. Right before they oh, won best geez. best restaurant. But uh, honestly, I, I I think it was perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, and I hope I don't get in trouble with anybody for for saying this. You know. Uh, but I really loved 11 Madison Park most during the era that I was there. And and the reason I say that, and this is a preference, this is not a criticism, it's a preference. Um, it was a New York restaurant. Yeah. Now it's a global restaurant. Yep. Right? But whenever I was there and we got four stars from the New York Times and we started getting Michelin stars and we started getting on, you know, the San Pellegrino uh, uh, best best in the world mm-hmm. uh, list, you know, we were still a New York restaurant. We yeah. had regulars that came to the bar and came to the dining room every week, yeah. sometimes multiple times a week, right? And it's not that restaurant anymore. And that's, again, not a criticism. It's just, you know, there was something to be said for coming to 11 Madison Park and being able to get just an amazing piece of lamb or an amazing steak or an amazing, you know, Daniel's um, duck was, it's the best I've ever had in my mm-hmm. life, right? And so now it's it's a it's a vegan restaurant and it's, it's a global dining uh, destination. Um, and I think that, you know, for them to be able to have accomplished what they have post my time there um, is extraordinary. But man, I'll tell you, you know, I love Madison Park was was during the time I was there, my favorite New York restaurant, not just because I worked there, but because I saw how much joy it was able to consistently deliver to people every single night and every single lunch, too. That was a cool thing, too. Yeah. You know, it was a business lunch place. It's it's not quite that anymore. Right. right. It's it's a different it's a different um strata for sure but also a different audience and it was it was super cool to be able to 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 share 11 madison park as a captain there um whenever i was on that team uh with people who were hungry and looking for an authentic new york city experience over and over and over you know uh i've read will's book unreasonable hospitality a couple times gone through it with our leadership team on our live events team uh absolutely Love it. One of the things that that he talks about during uh, his time at Eleven Madison Park was mm. the the authority he gave to the team to, oh, yeah. to run those areas of the restaurants, and then to actually see somebody who might be passionate about coffee or tea yes. or beer, and really say, "You're going to own that's right the beer program." Um, talk about what that did to that team environment when somebody saw a peer getting that kind of chance to do something kind of extraordinary at a restaurant, even when it was still just that New York restaurant, yep. it was still a, a very, you know, established yep. and respected restaurant. Well, I, I, there's so many ways to approach responding to that. And I love that you bring it up because it's something that I, I uh, resonate with so deeply. And I think about myself all the time, you know, it's this, we used to call it shared ownership at, at 11 Madison. And I carried that phrase on past uh, my time there and brought it to each of the restaurants I opened following. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, something that Will and I have joked about before, uh, and I think he, he probably references it in terms of the arc of the evolution of the restaurant. Uh, again, speaking to when I started working there, it was not cool to be smart. It was not cool to study. It was not cool mm-hmm. uh, to to come in, you know, in, uh, enthusiastic and eager to talk about wine pairings and like geek out about cocktails. And yeah. like it, that wasn't the culture whenever I started there. It was starting to, to move that direction. But, you know, the, the joke that I remember, you know, Will 
uh, making uh, is that, you know, early lineups whenever he started at 11 Madison Park and Daniel was was already like moving the kitchen in a very different direction at that time. Uh, you know, you would at lineup, uh, one of the managers, the wine director, whomever would ask a question of the staff. And it was kind of like the staff just universally was like, screw you. You know what yeah. I mean? It wasn't wow. cool to be yeah. to be uh, um, a strong you know, um, nobody wanted to be champion. Exactly yeah. right. But over the course of the three years I was there, that changed entirely. Mm-hmm. And some of the some of the stalwarts from the previous era shifted, and they fell in love with this idea of learning and passion and and kindness and and investment and you know being a banner waver for this new era of the restaurant. And the ones that didn't shift, they left. Yeah. Right. And and we we infused the place uh, with with new blood and and new enthusiasm and, and, and passion. Uh, and as, like I say, after I left to Madison Park, um, you know, I opened uh, four places uh, either as a partner or as, as, you know, the, the architect and architect along with other, other collaborators of, of, you know, great fine dining places. And, and um, I always carried with me that central theme. In fact, there was this one day in particular, I remember Will walked up to me on this little ramp that went up toward the bar and it was kind of seemed haphazard, honestly, which which interestingly, as I look back on, it seems odd, you know, uh, but he walked up and he's like, hey, uh, Eamon, uh, I'm going to I'm going to move you into the bar. I, I know that we've talked about you, you know, uh, um, becoming a bartender and training as a bartender. I want you to know, though, that you can only do this if you take the direction of our cocktail program. Uh, as seriously as the bartenders at Milk and Honey do, and this is back when Milk and Honey was still still open, back when Sasha still was alive, and um, they were kind of like the defining cocktail program in yeah. t- in town in New York, and arguably you know beyond New York as well. And he's like, you can go work behind the bar if you take our drinks at Eleven Madison Park as seriously as the bartenders do at Milk and Honey, and as seriously as the baristas do about coffee at Cafe Grumpy and Ninth Street Espresso. And we, we went down the list and it was, it was again, it was such a, uh, a weird moment because we weren't talking before this. Like I was mm-hmm. kind of walking one direction, he was walking the other direction and, and he grabs me and he's like, this is what's going to happen. And um, I, I thought that was just such a, such a, a compelling mission, right? We're going to do at every level in every department um, with the same degree of passion uh, across the board, what other people specialize in, mm-hmm. right? And that that really changed the way I thought about uh, organizing and building a restaurant and a team. And, you know, you referenced this idea of shared ownership earlier. That's the only way you can accomplish it, you know, because Will was not an expert in everything, right? No. He's a smart guy, right? right? And none of us are. Cur- cursory knowledge enough to exactly. be dangerous in everything. Yes. But didn't know coffees That's right. to the degree that the coffee shared ownership person That's exactly know. right. And, and it was his cognizance of that and uh, his decision, uh, his, his mission to to find people that were going to dedicate the majority, if not all of their professional energy to becoming the best at that one thing or those two or three things and empowering them to grow that interest and grow that uh, level of knowledge um, to to elevate the, the restaurant's offerings in that area so that everything that we did was at the highest level. I carried that with me. I've still carried that with me throughout my, my career. And I think, um, you know, especially Bettany, where, where you and I met, um, I tried to embody that to the highest level possible. 
All right, so I sidetracked us big time. <laughs> Sorry. It was probably me, actually. No, no, no. I, I stopped and said I, we, we, I took a, a hard right off uh, to, uh, to 11 Madison Park. Uh, thank you. Of yes. course. Yep. Refilling, refilling glass. Yes. Um, all right, so Genesis of Bettany and mm-hmm. how it started for uh, you and Bryce. Yeah. Well, so after 11 Madison, I opened a little cocktail bar um, that we later evolved into what is now a Terra in okay. Tribeca. Um, and then following uh, that restaurant, uh, I opened a place called Aska in Williamsburg. And, you know, those restaurants were like so different from one another. Um, but they shared a lot of the same the same. Uh, fundamental um, values, right? And primarily tasting menu, but not entirely. Uh, really strong cocktail programs. Fairly small, fairly focused. Really, really, um, uh, I guess, precious in some ways. Labored over, mm-hmm. right? And that some people love and some people don't. Um, but Betney, um, as the result of the partnership that I had with Bryce, and also I think the location and the space became something different. So one day I was at Asuka, that that. Uh, Brooklyn uh, fancy tasting menu Scandinavian restaurant, which is still doing really well. Um, somebody came into the kitchen where I, where I was chatting with the chef Freddie, and um, and they were like, "Hey, there's a there's a cook at the bar. There's a chef at the bar. I think he knows you. He said he knows you." And so I was like, "Oh, that's cool." So I walk into the bar and I see Bryce, and you know. Bryce is a Brooklynite. He he lives not too far from uh, where Oscar was at the time. It's moved since then, but uh, he, I knew he was in the neighborhood, so it wasn't strange that he was there per se. I hadn't sure. seen him in a while, you know, but uh, but it was cool. And and you know, Bryce and I were always friendly, uh, but we weren't like super duper tight. But I always had tremendous respect for him. At the time, he was the chef de cuisine uh, at, um, uh, or, or perhaps executive sous chef. I don't remember which, but, uh, he was like one of the top dogs in the kitchen at Madison park. I I think his official title was executive sous chef. And so tremendous respect, always loved the guy. And, and he shows up at the bar and we start chit chatting and, and he shares that he's, he's kind of in conversation with, uh, with these folks that are working on this new restaurant in Midtown, right, right in the heart of Midtown Manhattan, which it's worth saying that in 2013, 12, 13, when we're having this conversation, Midtown had some, you know, amazing classic restaurants like Le Bernardin and Danielle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a cool neighborhood, right? And so there were yeah. old school, fine dining, super duper duper fine dining, uh, like mostly French restaurants. And then not a whole lot of, of uh, not a whole lot of attention grabbing, super cool, cutting edge um innovative restaurants right. right which is not to say there's not cool stuff or like special things but but you know midtown uh, was a little bit of a drought for for fun right in right. in terms of dining in terms of dining um and so we're like let's just do it let's just open a, a restaurant that that you know the saying to keep pulling from you know our uh, stomping grounds at 11 Madison Park, right? One of the original critics said, what 11 Madison Park really needs is a bit more Miles Davis, mm-hmm. right? And and that changed everything about the direction of 11 Madison Park and I think brought them in a very different direction. And so Bryce and I, coming from that same school, said to ourselves, let's bring Miles Davis to Midtown, 
You know what I mean? Let's try to do what Lev Madison Park did downtown in the Flatiron District. Let's try to do our own version. We're not, not trying to yep, replicate, not copy, it. not copy it at all, but like let's try to bring that same same spirit of innovation um, with fun and and like a loud, busy, bustling bar with loud, busy, beautiful soul music, right? Uh, in innovative, fun, approachable food um, and extraordinary cocktails. Again, this idea of shared ownership where we were going to really dedicate time and energy to making each area of what we did special, right? And at the highest level of quality, let's just do that, right? And um, and we so so we set out to accomplish it. I, I uh, got out of Oscar. He got out of Love Madison Park and we started working on, on Betany. It was amazing. So you guys, you guys open it mm. and... Was it an instant kind of hit out no. of the gate? No. Okay. <laughs> no. No, definitely not. Um, we opened, and um, and again, we were doing something that nobody was really doing in Midtown. And, and I would argue because we were in Midtown, because we had this huge space, relatively speaking. You know, we had three floors, two kitchens, big bar. It was a lot, right? We had almost 150 seats in the place. Um, which for that level of fine dining, it's a lot of it's mm-hmm. a lot of moving parts, right? So uh, to do that in at that scale, uh, lunch and dinner, um, and uh, and in that neighborhood, it was just unique, right? So people all the time for the first few months, we were dead, we were dead. Mm. Um, people would come in and just be like, where is the whole roasted Ludemere? You know, where's, where's the food that we want to eat? Nobody cares about this food. Nobody, nobody cares about, you know, these craft cocktails. Uh, and people shut us down every day. Uh, it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And all these, you know, uh, uh, fine dining servers, you know, that came from Per Se and, and Danielle and LaBernadette, like real veterans, they, everybody drank the Kool-Aid in the best possible way. Like we were all dedicated to accomplishing this goal, you know, but nobody was making money. Uh, people were having a really hard time just paying their bills, right? Because we were dead. Nobody, nobody came to eat. Right. Uh, and, and the bar was quiet, right? And it was really worrisome. And, and we were like scratching our heads for months and thinking, did we make a terrible mistake, right? Mm-hmm. But then uh, Pete Wells came in, the food critic for the New York Times, who uh, I, I've always appreciated his work. Um, and I, I encountered him and interacted with him. I don't want to say got to know because that's not the case. But like I had gotten um, – he'd made an impression on me throughout the course of my career at other restaurants mm-hmm. that he'd reviewed um, and always been very um, – um, favorable toward toward were, the restaurant. Were you there the night he came in? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And and is every it, night. And it's it's the kind of thing that everybody is. Is his picture up in the back? Like, is it is it that kind of thing where everybody knows Pete Wells? He's in. I just sat Pete Wells at seventeen. Send. Essentially, yeah. I mean, we could that could be a whole another conversation if you wanted to have a conversation about critic critics and education and staff investment etc in terms of knowledge yeah. uh, but suffice to say yeah pe- people universally knew who Pete Wells was what yeah. he looked like and 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 how to tailor it as best we're able you know as we do for any guest which is important to say too you know there are a lot of restaurants that and Pete Wells did a, a very um, uh, poignant article a review for the times that sort of picks apart what happens when restaurants value critical um, experiences much more than they value everybody else's experience, yeah. which is a shame, right, when it, whenever that happens. And I, I want to make make it very, very clear that 
we would bend over backward for anybody, right? That was yeah. that was our ethos, right? We wanted to make people I, happy. I experienced that, yes. you know, in our in our times there. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Uh, but, you know, in the same way that we want to make everybody's experience as extraordinary as possible, we wanted to make Pete Wells' experience as extraordinary as possible and also knew that he could change the course of the restaurant's life, yeah. right? With, with the stroke of a pen, he could give us life. And we were dying mm-hmm. until that point. We were quiet. We were we were not paying our bills. It was very hard to to, wow. to make ends meet. Um, and he got it. He got it. He he came in three times, um, and and we showed him what we wanted to do and who we wanted to be, and he got it. Uh, and so and he's coming into a restaurant that more than likely on those nights wasn't bustling, dead, wasn't packed, dead. He was one of three or four tables, maybe. Yeah, and. We so, had to not, not we had to we chose to uh, take people who are working out of the dining room and out of the kitchen and put them in street clothes and just sit them around him just so that he wouldn't be in a crickets dining room you know did, did he know that no he couldn't have known definitely that. not no no that's yeah definitely not but it happened he came back the next week or two weeks later he's like you I, I don't do pretty I, sure I, I yeah, ate next to you. The last time, or, or you're yeah. sitting. You were my server last time, and now you're yeah. you're over there eating. Uh, That's right. It'd yeah. be funny. It'd be funny uh, if if a maybe. Man, I don't know. He's a pretty clever guy. It'd be funny if uh, he started taking note of you know whether or not all the tables around him are wearing clogs. You know, like <laughs> traditional chef's footwear, right? Yes. Uh, but uh, but that yeah, that'd be really clever or really funny to ask ask a critic if they if they were. You know, cognizant of those sort of markers of what what chefs and what bartenders are are typically wearing when they're in their street clothes. Yeah. But yeah, we tried to fill the dining room to a, to an extent, you know, so it just didn't feel like a mausoleum, right? Yeah. And uh, but he got it right. We we really worked hard to show him who we wanted to be. And actually, that's it to to loop back around. Um, I think it was Will that said something like. Frank Bruni, I believe, uh, was the, the the critic he referenced. He was like, you know, Frank Bruni giving Love Madison Park four stars enabled the restaurant to become a four star restaurant. Mm. And I always loved that. Will's full of isms, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I don't know if that's an ism, but that's for me at least a will willism, you know. Uh, and I absolutely agree. You know, we, we were we were really struggling and trying our best at at Bettany and Pete Wells giving us an extraordinary uh, review. And it, I'll never forget the last line of it. Um, he says, I'm paraphrasing a touch, but he says something like, all Bettany needs is a crowd and they deserve it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, he gets it. He yeah. totally gets it. And the next day, the phones were ringing off the hook. We were packed, um, you know, beyond capacity from then on. Um, and, he, and it's true. It's true uh, um, uh, at that restaurant as well. By getting that review, we, we were then all of a sudden able to be the restaurant we always knew we could be. And that was a three-star review. Yeah. Uh, which is... You know, it's it's out of four stars, mm-hmm. right? But it's three stars is remarkable. Totally, like, totally yeah. Like that is amazing to get three stars. Yeah. A lot of restaurants get one and twos, right? Yes. I mean, it's not which I'm, are not bad, right? But, you know, the, so just to get reviewed, I think by the by the times yeah. is in of itself something to be proud of. Bryce and I always disagreed about. Um, where we wanted to go with the restaurant, with mm-hmm. Bettany, and I think also our careers for that matter. Um, and it's not, I'm in, in no way criticizing, it's just we had different goals. Mm-hmm. You know, Bryce wanted to open a restaurant that either became or already was intended to be the best restaurant in the world in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, top 50 and four stars and three Michelin, da 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 da. That's never really appealed to me, to be frank. Um, you know, I-, I loved working at 11 Madison Park. 
that level of formality I later came to realize consciously, and I think subconsciously it was always the case, I'm not really into that level of formality. You know what I mean? I I thought, you know, having a, a busy, rambunctious, sometimes a little bit too loud, but in the right way, bar that welcomed every single guest into our restaurant uh, was amazing. I just loved that energy, right? And the fun of it and the and the chaos in some ways. It felt really good and it made every night unique, yeah. right? And it's, to be frank, what, what I, I stopped loving about, you know, super duper fine dining, you know, uh, restaurants that I had either opened or been a part of prior, it's, you know, it feels like ballet that has been rehearsed so many times. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. But like, I like I like the improvisation much more. It's much more interesting to me. So, um, I I think that getting three stars from the New York Times and a Michelin star that made sure that that you know we we had proven who we were to ourselves, and then we had to our our mission was to uphold that level of quality on a nightly basis and evidence to our guests and to our team that we deserved it, right? Yeah. Um, but getting four stars at Betney, I mean, who am I to say what what would would or would not have been amazing at that time in terms of my experience there? But like, I'm so happy and so proud that we did exactly what we did because the restaurant it was just this perfect sort of. Um, uh, culmination of so many things that I, I get so excited about. And part of it is, is, is the volume, right? The decibel level and the fun and the mm-hmm. rock and roll, you know? Yeah. You know, my, my experiences, things that I, I remember from Bettany first, uh, I believe it was our, our second time there, mm. um, walking upstairs, it was pre pre-service and you had the servers coming in and you were, you were rehearsing, yeah. uh, the, the presentation of the courses. And, yes. And, I believe you ran them through it like four times or five times. Um, of hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. y- yes, and it was, yeah. and that's the night that we're seeing it. Yeah. Um, but it was just uh, the precision at which it was delivered. I think there's an expectation. You know, you you said, you know, you didn't, you don't yearn for the formality. Uh, that's not just who you are kind of at yeah. your DNA. That's right. Uh, at, at your core. Um but when people come to a fine dining restaurant, they expect yes. a certain level of that. Uh, and that when, you know, saw the rehearsal, was just super impressed by that and then saw it in action. Servers were, I remember them being amazing and just having uh, both the ability to be just this extreme level of service, but also very approachable, very yes. just accommodating all the things. The other thing that I remember, uh, and I believe this is, this was your your baby there was just mm. that beverage program. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were doing some pretty, I think for the time, what felt like kind of above and beyond yes. kind of cutting edge things, like making your own colas yeah. and and that kind of thing. So talk about like what that was like to create that entire beverage program. Sure. Because it was, it was very special. And you had a, a milk punch, is that, yeah? That was, we had all sorts of cool stuff, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's the we only. Also, as a side note, yes, we asked all the all of our personalities we were taking there. There's one who's no longer uh, on the team, mm. and uh, he was he was kind of new to drinking, like in his adult life, had never really drank. And sure. so we said, "What are your favorite drinks?" And we'll kind of have them create these custom cocktails off of this. It'll be great, uh, and you you did great. But he. <laughs> He said his favorite was a Long Island iced tea, yeah, uh, which just embarrassed us to no end. No, uh, but then you made a great cocktail that uh, 
was was amazing. But anyway, so talk <laughs> about just kind of making that beverage program and, yeah. and what that what process was like for you. Well, thank you for saying saying that. Um, I I truly believe that. The, the beverage program, specifically the cocktail program, although I'm in no way um, uh, distancing myself from how proud I am of, of the, the wine program as well that was in control and, and in charge uh, via Dean Firth and, and other really extraordinary wine professionals as well. But I, I, can't, I can't claim as much credit for that. Uh, but the, the bar program in particular was my baby for sure. Um, and it was how I was able to, I guess, stay in the dining room and stay in the bar uh, and not in the kitchen for so long, right? Because I was able to do so much cooking in the bar for our cocktails, mm-hmm. um, both literally and figuratively, you know? Um, I I love I love producing stuff from scratch. And, and you know, Rocky's is an example of, of something that absolutely evolved out of the, the beverage program of Betany that um, over the course of the four years we were open, uh, I think really set a high watermark for, for fine dining cocktail bars, fine dining cocktail programs. Um, you know, we made as much as we could in-house, uh, always with intention, you know, never for the sake of doing it, but always because we wanted to be able to do it understand the process and and bring something that you know um, uh, wasn't available you know on market in a bottle or from a distributor or whatever we wanted to be able to make things that that enhanced the beverage program and brought a different perspective and a different flavor profile for sure yeah and you were you know so if somebody just came in to get a, a whiskey and coke mm. it was whiskey and your coke right like you were or would you you didn't have traditional products or did you have some of that behind the bar that you would break out if you had to in case of emergency. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anytime we felt like we could make it better, we did. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting you bring the whiskey and Coke up. Um, I think, first of all, Coca-Cola is delicious. <laughs> and and I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think anybody should try to just make a different version of Coca-Cola because it's already perfect in, in what it is. And it doesn't have to be anything that it's not, right? Um, but the the... The example I always give is tonic, right? Mm. Not to get like too granular on it, but I think it's a good example. Um, I think Fever Tree Tonic is the tastiest tonic I've ever had, mm. you know? And and it's a huge company and they, they make millions of bottles of this stuff every year, but I still think it's truly delicious. And and I I made... Uh, especially earlier on whenever I was first learning to bartend because, you know, if you, I don't know if you remember, but like per se got really famous for its gin tonic and they were making their own quinine soda essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like this big deal, this fancy, you know, four-star restaurant in New York was making its own tonic. And I, as cool as that is in retrospect, I'm just like, that is not personally at least, that is not an area that I want to try to conquer because there's already such an extraordinarily good product out there, mm-hmm. right? So the the distinction between the two is that I wanted to make like Irish cream, right? I think that especially then, you know, this is 10 years ago, you know, most of the Irish creams on the market felt very mass market, you know, or felt very uh, mass produced. You didn't want to pour Baileys at Betany, is, you know. I didn't want to call yeah. out a brand, well, you know. It's, it's, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that, what I will say though is like the 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 story and and the um and the uh, mass appeal making that many people happy that often and in so many different applications that is extraordinary. So no knock in that at all. It's an impressive brand. But I said to myself, if we're going to serve an Irish cream at Betany, I want it to be the best it can possibly be, mm. right? And so you know, finding. Mm. 
the right Irish whiskey, finding the right cream. We worked with a with a small farm for the cream, figuring out how to stabilize it because getting booze and and fat, getting booze and cream to coalesce and hang out in, in a stable solution is not easy, right? right? And finding the right sugar, finding the right sweetener, right? And so, um, so, so, so simple, kind of getting back to what we talked about earlier, but just extraordinarily pristine ingredients, like three or four ingredients, the highest possible level of quality, executed perfectly. Um, that for me feels like a worthwhile expenditure of time. How do we make our own Irish cream? How do we make our own creme de cacao, right? How do we uh, produce a, one of my favorites, oh my gosh, one of my favorites was how do we produce our own root beer, right? Hmm. That uses 12 different things that all come from Maine and Vermont and upstate New York and whatever, right? How do we take those ingredients and produce an extraordinary traditional old school root beer that's properly fermented and it's grown from all the stuff in the woods, right? Or it's produced from all the stuff that grew in the woods wild. Um, that that always stimulated me. I, I said to a buddy the other day, his name's Lucas. He's a, he's a bartender uh, that I that I only recently met in D.C., so shout out to him. But we geeked out pretty hard. And it's infrequent that I get to, get to geek out like this. So <laughs> thank you. But uh, we were talking about, you know, some of our favorite things that we made. And he makes all sorts of really, really cool stuff at his bar. Um, but, you know, I made this liqueur uh, from um, acorns that I still... I, I did that once. D- did you really? No. Oh. <laughs> Oh my I wouldn't God. even think about making liqueur oh, from acorns. It's so good. It's so somebody needs to do it and and make it for real. You know, people have been eating acorns as a as a staple of their diet. You know, for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Do you know anybody that eats acorns? Personally, currently, yeah. Well, you can actually buy acorn flour and make like pasta and stuff from from acorns. Oh, it sounds very very New York. <laughs> sure, but like. Indigenous people in North America yeah. have, have subsisted off of acorns as a component of their diet for a long time. And, you know, the problem is they're so darn bitter. They're really, really astringent. Mm. And so how do you produce something delicious, whether it's for food or beverage, you know, from this extraordinarily um, uh, uh, stringent, bitter ingredient, right? And so we figured out this process using lye, which is poisonous, mm. and, <laughs> and how, to, how, to, how to, you know, create something that's not toxic. And, and so it's this crazy process that had legit... Again, like three or four ingredients, but the, the 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 winding path of process was so intense and you know potentially hazardous uh, to your health. Um, but it ended up being so good and unique and delicious. Those for me are the j- journeys that are really really interesting. How to do something at a at an extremely high level of quality that's innovative and simple and clean and inspiring and fresh and new. Do you, do you feel like in times like that you're like a chemist? I guess. I'm, I mean, you, that's you know, you're using lye. You're yeah. using, you know, you're using some yeah. some dangerous ingredients, yeah. uh, and then you you've got to produce something safely, right? And know how to do. I mean, it seems you're making chemical reactions at totally. some level, yeah. Even as you're creating that root beer, or I mean, it, it takes exactness versus yeah. versus going into the kitchen and throwing some things in and and adding a little salt. I mean, you've got to be precise. I think there's a lot of intuition when you're cooking because this is this is what it is. It's cooking, right? Uh, there's a lot of intuition, and and you you're able to. Um, I'd be curious, you know, to chat with a chef about this. Like, you know, you 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 look at something that you've done before. You look at something perhaps that other people are doing, and they feel uh, confident about. And there's a lot of tradition, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of process that that feels, you know. Um, 
proven, right? Right. It's, it's a it's a it's a it's a proven entity, right? And to be able to then look at something else that's completely disconnected and and in no way referential to the first, and to say. I can connect these. I can transfer the information I have about the first thing to the second thing, and it's going to work, yeah. right? Um, and that's that's where the the acorn thing came from. It was like, oh, acorns are astringent. What else is astringent? Olives are astringent. How do you make olives less astringent? You can do it a variety of different ways: salt, lye, water. There's all sorts of different ways. Hmm. What is the application? What is the process that I can pull from this uh, uh, olive, you know, uh, astringency solution and move it over to acorns? Something that Right, doesn't directly relate, but it works, right? Yeah, and, you're trying to get that same result, right? Yeah, the, exactly. The bitterness, and then you say to yourself, okay, bagels and pretzels, you know, they use lye, right? But how do we make them safe? Lye is heat reactive, and it needs to blow off, right? So I'm going to make sure to treat the acorns with lye, and then I'm going to make sure to heat them up and get the get the convection going. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So that all the toxins are are going to blow off. And it was spooky, dude. It was really spooky. Like you take all these acorns, we whacked them up with a bunch of um, hammers. And they look kind of like um, sweet potatoes, right? Yeah. So they're like splintered sweet potatoes, right? And orange. And then you pour this lye solution over them. And I swear to you, like in half a second, the whole thing turns black, like jet oh, black. Okay. It is spooky, right? So you take something that looks like water and you pour it over something that looks like sweet potatoes. And then it turns into something that looks like poison. Because it is. Because it is poison. Right. You, if right? you ate that, it'd be bad. You would, you would be yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. And then it, you know, everybody recoiled and was like, oh my God, what did we just do? Right. And, and then you let them sit for a little while. You drain them off. You throw them in the oven. And then the even spookier thing happens um, that all the lye gases off as clouds, like these deep, thick, rich clouds of white smoke, right? And so your kitchen is full of these poisonous white clouds. Yeah, th- th- mm-hmm. that can't be good, right? No, it's not good at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> but luckily, we're in a commercial kitchen that has a big hood, vent, you know, to vent out. Right, exactly. You wouldn't want to be in a, a, a pigeon on the roof at that point, you oh, know what I mean? Poor pigeons. Right. We don't know that anybody was hurt. Um, but you definitely would You probably w- didn't get approval from the city on d- that. Definitely not. But- uh, but, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's orange and then it's black and then it's gassing out these dragon clouds that look so sinister. And then you're like, are we okay eating this? You know, and, and we, we cooked it for, uh, I forget how long. It was a long time, a couple hours at least, if not longer, uh, maybe overnight in uh, whiskey. And all of a sudden now the whiskey is black, right? It's like deep, deep, deep black. Um, and... I don't think anybody was willing to try it except me initially, but, but like we sweetened it. I forget with what it was either maple or something. I don't know. It was delicious. And, and, but oh my God, Joe, it's like, it was so delicious and unique. I've never had anything like it before. And I'm like, squirrels, they know what's up. They're delicious. Ah, You know what I'm saying? Like the squirrels are onto something. And I think that somebody listening to this, hopefully will try doing this, try making it. And, and I'll tell you, it's so good. And there's a, there's an industry here for the right, for the right person. But it's not you. No, I mean, I've got my hands full. Like I'm, I'm the whole team for Rockies and I'm covering like 13, 14 markets now by myself. Um, and the demand has been extraordinary. Um, but thus far, you know, it's a self-funded business with, with some friends and family that have really shown a lot of love and a lot of support and patience with me. Um, and spreading the word on this has been really, really, really uh, fulfilling, you know. Yeah. What uh, if, if somebody were to, to go out here, find a bottle mm. Bring it home. Yes, please. It's, it's <laughs> yes, please. Take two. Um, you know, we're we're coming up. I, I want to give you give them two ideas. Mm. One, the perfect 
kind of Rockies fall sure. cocktail, and then that perfect Rockies holiday mm. cocktail. Because we're right around the corner, December holiday parties. Yeah. Give me kind of two options for folks that they could easily just make at home. Definitely. Well, so, and thank you for asking. Um, it's, it's, it's based on apples. Rockies is based on apples. And, you know, we're in Tennessee, so I, I feel like just leaning on that sweet tea, it feels, feels right mm. he, here in the South, you know. So from my perspective, especially it's October, we're moving into, into the, the fall. Uh, Rockies and whiskey is just so darn good. Mm. You know, it really, really is. The apples and whiskey are, are perfect together. So, and what that means is exactly like we're doing now, you know, take Rockies, throw it over some ice and pour some whiskey into your heart's content and okay. li- life, will, life will reward you for sure. In terms of the holidays, what I, what I like about that question is that it kind of carries over evergreen year round is I love drinking punches and spritzes and things like that, you know, sparkling stuff, mm-hmm. right, in the holidays. So I think it's just a, a really uh, convivial time to spend uh, with your family and with your friends and to celebrate and crack open a bottle. Um, so I, I personally love Rockies uh, with sparkling wine um, or not so sparkling wine as well. It just feels like the right celebratory thing. And, you know, you can easily uh, pour that all night long around a table of people. And because Rockies is not super boozy and because Prosecco or whatever is not particularly boozy, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that you can enjoy for an entire meal or an entire evening. And it stays fresh. It's food friendly. Uh, and as wonderful as it is around around the, the table for your holiday tradition, um, that exact drink, that spritz or whatever, you know, uh, on a rooftop in the summer is also outstanding. It's yeah. so, so good. So um, I, I would I would push people to, to try Rockies in that sort of direction. You know, give give it a swing with some bubbles. And then if, if we're talking about fall cocktails, you can't go wrong with Rockies and whiskey. Sounds great. All right. I, I do want to ask you, you know, you kind of mentioned you you got out of the kitchen, you yeah. went you went front of house, um, beverage mm. ninja, beverage <laughs> Jedi, if you will, to keep keep on brand. Um but you, you kind of hinted that you think you might find your way back into the kitchen. I hope so. What what what's that what's that what's popping around in your head? Like what when you think of going into the kitchen, what's yeah. your what's your kind of your your next thing? If you were to say, Hey, in three years I'm sitting in a kitchen in my own place and this is what's your kind of your food point of view? What would I walk into if I walked into your place? Sure. So we worked with um at Bettany, we worked with a gentleman named Benjamin Schmirler. Ben Schmirler. Um, he is one of my favorite people in the world, and and he was our publicist, but he was also a friend first uh, that that got the word out about the restaurant. And we we wanted to work with Ben because he just got it. You know, he really understood. Um, there's a lot of PR firms out there. There's a lot of publicists out there, and and you know they're going to find an angle. They're going to they're going to pitch it. They're going to get the word out, but but it might not necessarily land as well right if if the if the the person delivering the message doesn't really resonate with it right and ben got it so what ben always used to say is that um he he wanted to try the the drinks and the dishes at betany that were like gut punchingly delicious right and and i i always stuck with stuck with me for some reason um and i uh i love uh preparing Dishes and drinks, and I think Rockies falls in this category, is something that when you eat it or when you drink it, it's just 
gut-punchingly delicious and mm-hmm. it's undeniably satisfying um, and something you want to return to, right? right. Um, I, there are so many places, uh, restaurants, bars, et cetera, that, that are really good at producing something that's unique and maybe once in a lifetime or, or uh, thrilling for whatever reason, but once or twice is enough, right? Um, I want to I produce food and drinks that people can return to every day. You know, and and just really resonate with, and it becomes a part of who they are. You kind of mentioned earlier that Eleven Madison Park; it was the place that people came back weekly. That's right. Um, but you're you thinking like more comfort food? Totally. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Food I want to cook. Food I want to eat. Yeah. So yeah, not not for fine sure. dining. No, um, probably not. But not chilies. Correct. <laughs> Probably, I mean, we love a blooming onion, you know. We love a blooming onion. No, I mean, around this time of year, I'll just give an. I'll answer your question with an example, I guess. Um, my mom used to make chicken and dumplings when I was a kid, mm. and it was simple, you know. It was just like a really, really, really good chicken soup with biscuit drop dumplings. These big, fluffy dumplings, and she'd put it in spoon by spoon at the top of the pot, and and turn it on a low simmer, put the top on. And like 10 minutes later, you come off, come take the top off, right? And it's like a cake had risen in there, yeah. right? It's just like insane. And I've never had, in New York at least, I've never had chicken and dumplings with like drop biscuit dumplings before. Are they strips up there? Yeah, or strips it, are yeah. weird. They're kind of chewy, you know. <laughs> they I, are kind of weird. But, yeah. but so, to me, it's what I grew up uh, from my grandmother. And so, but they're oddly like addictive too. They're, they're not that tasty. Like there's, there's, there's <laughs> yeah, no taste yeah, yeah. to them. Yeah, I agree. Like the dumpling yeah. itself has zero yeah, taste. I agree. It tastes like undercooked dough. That's right. And then you're just counting on the the broth and everything. That's right. And you know what? If that's if that's your thing, if that's your dumpling love language, then cool. But for me, I'm like I want I want people to dig into a bowl of the best chicken and dumplings that at least I know how to make mm-hmm. that I've ever had and and carry that memory with them um, because it's given me so much pleasure in my life the dishes like that right yeah. so if I could if I if I could open a restaurant someday that makes the best chicken and dumplings ever that's what I would do very cool yeah all right well uh, as you know the podcast is called may the smoke be with you uh, it is a an homage uh, a tip of the hat to to Star Wars. Um, so we always ask our guests, are you, are you a Star Wars fan? I'm a fan. I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't say I'm like a, um, You're not a geek. I'm not a geek about it. That's fine. At least not about Star Wars. I'll geek yeah. out about other stuff. You know? Okay. What do you geek out on? I mean, definitely, definitely cocktails for sure. And food. Um, I, I also lately just been really getting into cosmology, you know, and like the study of the, of the universe. And yeah. I, I'm not in any way saying that I'm, I'm at a danger level of, of expertise about it. But like, it's really, really cool stuff. Um, I think, you know, with the James Webb space, space telescope going up, yeah. um, there's all sorts of really, really neat stuff that's around the corner. That's cool. All right. Well, do you have a favorite Star Wars movie? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, it's not really a great question. It's just a, it's just a question. <laughs> You're being kind. You're stalling by, by answering and saying. No, I, you know, I've seen all of them. I don't know that I know all of the lat- latter ones by name specifically. That's okay. You know what I mean? That's okay. Um, what is the name of the one? Her name is Ren, right? Ray. 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 Yeah. yeah. Ren, Ren is another character. Ren is, uh, that's from Footloose. That's the main guy That's character hilarious. in Footloose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember really thinking that they did a great job on the one with Ray. Yeah, um, and uh, she's like uh, she's sister or brother or something, cousin with with um, yeah, 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 yeah Adam you're, Driver's you're, you're character. Doing, you're doing great. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I thought that 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 was great. That was uh, that was a really great movie. You know, what's fun, funny though? Not that long ago, I've I've a friend that never saw the original trilogy. Um, okay. and, and I was like, that seems crazy. Like, again, I'm not a cra- raving fan. Right, but it se. is one of those movies, cultural, yeah. iconic things. That it's like you... if you haven't seen the Star Wars, you know, orig- sorry, the original Godfather movies, it's kind of like not seeing the original Star Wars movies, I think. I've, I've never seen them. <laughs> okay, cool. That's crazy. Yeah. I've also never seen Titanic. I mean, yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> We could go off on a tangent, okay. but but I, I the the point is though like I I had only seen the original Star Wars trilogy myself when I was in like college kid, or right, yeah, yeah or whatever in high school or something, and so uh, we watched the three movies back to back to back in one day, and uh, I'll tell you watching them as an adult it's a completely different experience, yeah. you know, and also I think that so much has changed in movies now, you know, yeah, they can make a little better movie now. Totally, and I, I think the Marvel universe has changed the yes. way that we look at fantasy and sci-fi. Yeah. Like, I'm really, I'm, I'm interested in seeing. Are you a fan of Dune? No, no, okay, but it's okay. You actively don't like it, or you're just I, not a fan. I'm just, uh, I am, I have not been introduced. Got it. I've never watched a Dune. Got it. I'm not, uh, I'm not kind of a post-apocalyptic kind of guy. Right. right. And uh, just not for any reason, no, no moral or religious reasons. Just not. Just never drawn to that kind of sure, movie. sure. Okay. I get that. Um, well, but there's a new Dune. Is there a new Dune coming out? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what Denis Villeneuve has done with with um, the original Dune book, the first of several, and made the choice to divide it into two movies that are each long. They're very long movies. Um, I think it's, it's really, really clever, really smart, and I think I think he cast it extraordinarily well in the first. Um, in the first of the two movies, and I'm so excited to see what happens in the second, which should be out in a few months. Cool. Well, uh, I can't can't wait for that. I probably won't <laughs> see it, but it should be great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another question we always ask is, you know, if you're if you're out cooking, yes. uh, you know, maybe doing a backyard cook. Yes. Uh, what do you, What are you listening to? What's What's playing? You know, I I have a a Spotify station. It's not mine, but there is a Spotify station. It's called Yacht Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that so I, you're a yachty, huh? Well, to cook outside, you know, yeah. I, I do have a backyard at my place uh, in, in Harlem, in, in New York where I live, and I have this simple but great little setup, and you know, uh, cooking outside. Well, I've been I've doing doing a lot of goat lately. Nice, a lot of goat, and and since it's a barbecue show, right? Yeah, yeah. Theoretically, like kind um, of like Caribbean flavors. Like, what are you doing with the with the goat? What do you? Well, um, I've been buying like full legs, like mm-hmm. a like a almost like a quarter yep. uh, a primal of of goat, and I do an overnight marinade that's essentially equal parts soy sauce, Chinese black vinegar. Um, oil of some sort, whether it's corn or whatever, some neutral oil, mm-hmm. not not olive oil. You don't want something that's really, really strong. Okay. But like um, neutral oil, Chinese black vinegar, soy sauce, tons of black pepper and tons of fresh garlic mm-hmm. um, and essentially make a puree out of that um, and massage it into the goat and then throw it over uh, a really, really um, slow burn like ember fire that's cooked down out of hardwood. Okay. Um, that is a really good piece of meat. And yeah. like cooking it medium, medium rare and serving it with um, whole milk yogurt that's been blended with more garlic. 
um, lemon juice and salt. And that is, mm. it's one of the most satisfying and delicious, like gut pleasing dishes. Yeah, no, for sure. That's on the menu too. Sounds with amazing. The, with the chicken oh, and dumplings. Okay. All right. I, I dig that. Uh, with the yacht rock playing. Yes, with the yacht. <laughs> and then uh, I normally ask people what they're, what they're drinking. Mm. If you're not drinking Rockies, yeah. let's just make that, you know, that's the easy answer. Totally. All right. But I assume you still drink other things than All Rockies. All the time, yes. So what, what would you be drinking if you're out there cooking the goat if it's not Rockies? Uh, cheap beer. Cheap beer, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like you're cooking the goat. You got to, you got to, you know, cook the wood, right? And, and let it cook down. And then you got to cook the goat for like an hour and a half, two hours. So I think if you hit it too hard too early, then you're just going to make a fool out of yourself, which I am inclined to do no matter what, right? Um, okay. I think trying to hedge my bets on, on semi sobriety by the, by the time it's time to eat. Um, yeah, cheap beer for sure all day. That's great. Yeah, man. Well, this, uh, this has been amazing. Likewise. Thank uh, you. I am extremely grateful for your, your time. Uh, I wish you the best of luck, continued success on Thank Rockies. Uh, again, go to rockiesliqueur.com. Uh, check out where you can get it in your area. If you don't see it in your area, I guess the best thing to do would be to ask your local bottle shops or to reach out on the website to you. Uh, and that uh, you would then be able to say, hey, we're having some interest yeah. in this area. Uh, and then you can then go to distributors and say, we're hearing from folks. Well, the distributor I work with uh, is called Best Brands here in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they are stocked and ready to roll. If you are a bar, right. restaurant, or retail shop, and you've liked what you heard uh, today about Rockies, uh, it would mean the world to me to, to check it out. That's great. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for being here. You made some <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for listening to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast with Joe Levitt.